Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. I should probably say this week that it's not the Marty's Miss America podcast. We got a little feedback the last couple of weeks that people still feel like I'm saying the Marty's Miss America podcast. I think I just need to get Miss America on. Uh, do it. Come on with it. Or we could just get her to. We like Miss America. If we could just get her to record some liners, too. Yes. Uh, so this is the Marty Smith's America podcast. And we have an unbelievable show today, man. Uh, we have a couple of guests that are very prominent in Nashville, Tennessee right now and throughout the country music universe, one of whom is a wildly successful songwriter and has written a bunch of number one hits. He's a good buddy of mine, and you're going to love his story, Ray Fulcher. Ray has a brand new song out called Love You Son, Go Dogs." that if you guys have not heard or don't know about, it's time to go to your Spotify or Apple Music right now and stream it. No, listen to the podcast, then go listen to it. That's a good point. Yeah, listen to Ray, listen to our interview with Ray first, and then go listen to Love Your Son, Go Dogs, because it's going to hit you, man. I'll never forget the first time I heard it, uh, and we get to hear Ray discuss the first time he heard it, and, and you'll hear his path. Uh, He's written a bunch of number one songs with and for Luke Combs, who is one of the biggest stars in the format right now. And so that was a fascinating interview. Y'all are going to love it, especially SEC football fans, because Ray is a Georgia Bulldog, and you're going to love to hear about his work with the football team when he was a student there. And not only do we have Ray, but we also have Bobby Bones, who is – an indescribably successful radio personality. And, and, I mean, he's on American Idol. He won Dancing with the Stars. He's, won, he's written a couple number one New York Times bestsellers. I mean, the guy's everywhere. And so uh, we're excited to have Bobby on as well. Uh, his folks reached out to us. I always love it when they reach out to us because it just makes my life easier. <laughs> exactly. Like, listen, exactly. I, love, I, love landing, I love landing these guests. But you know what's even better is when they come to me and I don't have to do anything. You know, it's the same people that helped us uh, get Brett Young on the podcast. You know, he has the same people and they reached out to us and said, hey. I have a lot of friends this? at that public relations firm, Green Room PR, uh, Tyne Parrish, uh, who runs that program, has been a friend of mine for, hell, 15, 20 years now. And they do a great job. They have a ton of superstar clients. Al Dean's a client. Uh, you know, Bobby's a client. They got that. They just have uh, Dirks Bentley's a client. They have a ton of superstars out there in Nashville, Tennessee. So I look forward to catching up with Bobby and kind of learning his path. I know who he is and I know all the things that he's accomplished, but I don't know very much about how he got there. So we're going to dive into that. And I know a lot of you guys are massive fans of his. So I think you'll enjoy that. Guys, uh, you know how grateful I am to be a part of the Levitard and Friends podcast network. Make sure that you check out the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gotts every, every weekday, 10 to 12 Eastern time on ESPN Radio and ESPN News. And they are, at this point, producing original content just for their podcast network that, uh, they, that they take before the show and after the show For those of you guys who, like me, are massive fans of Dan and Stu and Mike and the shipping container guys and everything they do, that's just so amazing. All right, with that, let's bring in our first interview with Ray Fulcher. 
a country music artist who is a tremendous artist, a tremendous writer, and a good buddy of mine who has a new single out right now. So let's bring him in, Travis. So before we go anywhere into your path to where you are and how you got there, I just I want to talk about the single first because yep. if people listen to six minutes of this podcast, I want them to hear about Love Your Son, Go Dogs. When did yep. you send that to me? A month ago? Yeah, probably six weeks ago, something like yeah, that. Yeah, month, six weeks ago. Uh, it came out uh, on radio, or it was released on uh, October 2nd, on Friday. And I love this song, man. It's, to me, it is father-son relationships. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. On the platform of the beauty of college football and the bond that that creates. Totally. I just want you to give me the entire backstory on how you got the song, what it was like to cut it and the emotion that was involved in that. So Jordan Walker, one of the writers of the song, he called me one day back in, this is probably middle of last year. And I was, uh, I remember being in the parking lot in my truck and he goes, he sent me this idea called Go Dogs. It was just called Go Dogs then. And it was basically the same thing. Like, you know, it's about this conversation that you would have with your dad. And he's like, be thinking on it. And I remember just getting chills thinking about the idea. Well, I went on a, a riding trip with Luke Combs and Dean Dillon, which was like unbelievable in itself. And uh, while I was gone, Jordan calls me up and goes, hey, let's write that song today with Ben, ben Hayslip. He's a guy from Georgia, songwriter. I said, well. Uh, Writes a lot with, uh, with uh, Red Akins, doesn't he? He doesn't, does. Yeah, I thought so. He does, yeah. And so anyway, he called me and uh, said that. And I said, well, I can't do that. I'm down here writing with Luke and Dean and – he goes, well, I'm going to write it with Ben today. And I was like, no, don't. He's like, <laughs> wait on me. And then he was like, uh, he's like, I'll see if Ben likes it or whatever. So anyway, about three hours later, he sends me the work tape. And originally I was mad because he didn't wait on me. But then after I heard it, I was like, all right, there's a reason I didn't write it because this is perfect. And so, and I remember just getting chills all over me. And still to this day when I listen to it, even though I've listened to it a bunch, but I remember, you know, I pretty much wrote everything else that I put out and all this other stuff that we recorded, but it was such a special song because it, it kind of felt like it was my story in a way. It was just the same kind of language that me and my dad use it. Same here. We had a preacher that left the church in my hometown. My dad's got an old Ford sitting in the backyard and like, it just, you know, it was, it was just directly, you know, it was a thing that I felt was just like, I have to record this song. I think it was on hold with a bigger artist for like six months. And then I just remember thinking, gosh, I hope for some reason he doesn't record it. And uh, so it came available. And those guys let me let me record it. And it's been, you know, I sent it to yourself and a few other guys that, and I had a great reaction, but it's been cool to see the world get to hear it. It knocked my socks off, dude. I, I'll never forget where I was. I was in my truck too. That's where I consume music the best is when I'm in my, in my truck. Yeah. And you sent me a, a text and you're like, you got to listen to this one. And so I put it on and I, same reaction. I had chills all over me Yeah. because anybody who listens to this podcast regularly watches me on TV knows a damn thing about me knows that my sweetest moments with my father are at Virginia tech football games, being aligned together in that energy of the Hokies, no matter what city or town oh. I was in yep. or whatever, every time that he called me, it was just that it was like, uh, hey, hey, Frank's got him playing pretty good, boy. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I love you. Go Hokies. And I heard that, and I was like, oh, my God, this is my life. It's my life, yeah. 
it's just a fantastic song. And if y'all, if that's your life, and so many people who listen to this are, are SEC people and, and Southern folks, you guys, if you have not heard Ray's song yet, you have to. You got to just go consume it. And I did throw something out on the god-awful tweeter machine the other day yeah. <laughs> about it. And, and I've heard from a ton of my friends, man, who listened to it and, and may not have known about your work or your path right. or your music. And they were like, okay, this just went in my drinking mix. Right. Yeah. It's that, it's that one that you put on at the, at the end of the night with that last cup of whiskey and you go, all right, I'm going to cry and miss my old man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just proud of you, man. It's a, it's a beautiful song. Thanks for being a believer in me and and the song. And um, yeah, I saw you tweeting about it, which was awesome. I had my uh, Jordan Walker, actually the, one of the writers, he's, he's a big fan of yours. So he texted me and was like, how about Marty? I was like, yeah, man, he's, he's a, he's a fan of it. And, and, uh, and is proud, proud to show it. So. So let's discuss kind of how you've gotten to this place and people who may not understand your very rare and, and tremendous path to, to where you are now. Let's just go back to growing up in Georgia. How did that shape you? And what were your folks like? And what was your home life like growing up? Yeah, so I was from uh, Harlem, Georgia, little bitty town outside of Augusta, uh, about 20 minutes from Augusta. Um, and I went to high school at Harlem High School. And, and we, baseball, um, baseball was life in Harlem because the, the, the coach there is like the second winningest coach in Georgia state history. And um, him and my dad are good buddies. And it's all just a, I mean, just, if you know, prototypical, real small southern town. You know, everybody shows up at the ballpark. Everybody shows up at the game on Friday night. The, you know, the, the town shuts down. And, and so, and I learned, I think, a lot of my life lessons just from playing sports. You know, I'll never forget before I moved to Nashville, just to give you an example, was my high school baseball coach goes, I asked him, I was like, hey, because I was thinking about being a coach versus being a, going and pursuing music full time. And, and he was like, well, all I know to tell you is I've been around this world a long time and I know that you can't hit a grand slam if you don't swing the bat. So if I was you, I'd probably go swing the bat. So that's all I needed to hear. You know what I mean? It was like just those, it's just that kind of little, you know, things that I kind of took with me. And um, so I went to University of Georgia out of high school. I played baseball and football in, in uh, high school. But then I was a student assistant with the football team. I worked with the quarterbacks under Coach Bobo. And then I was a grad assistant. But, you know, what's cool about that is I've always told my mom, I was as, as a kid, my first time in Sanford Stadium was 1997. They were playing Southern Miss to open the season. And I was hooked and ain't, ain't let go since. I mean, it was just... <laughs> just the pageantry and the passion and like the band and the way that the way the, you know, the air smelled and like the barbecue and all that stuff. And so from right then when I was, you know, I guess 10 years old or whatever, I, my dream was to, you know, play football at Georgia. Well, that didn't work out, but somehow I got to work with the team. And I remember telling my mom, you know, where I'm at now, it's like, I've gotten to live two dreams. I got to live out not one, but two, because I got to my first one, was at Georgia. I got to be part of the football team. We won an SEC title while I was there. So I've got an SEC championship ring. And so from then I moved back to Harlem for a couple of years. I started, I started playing guitar uh, when I was 20, 21 in Athens. And, and the way I started was I saw my friends drove me to a, a show one night at Georgia theater, which they didn't really have to drag me, but I never really heard of this guy because his first song had just hit radio, but it was Eric church. And I remember he, man, he knocked my socks off. And then he, I was like, I, I love this guy's music. Never heard of him. 
I was like, I'm going to go buy his record immediately. So he sent off the band. He played a couple songs by himself. One of the songs he played was Lightning. Lightning. Yeah, on uh, the Sinners Like Me album. And I remember going, like, I had never had a song hit me the way that one did. And not because I, like, have lived that story, but just he did it so believingly and it was so emotional. And so I said right then and to myself, like, I know this is crazy to think, but, like, you know, I've got to, whatever he's making, however he's making me feel right now, like, that's what I want to do in my life. And so, you know, of course, it was crazy then because I didn't know how to play guitar. So I went and bought a guitar. <laughs> And then, but it was like one little thing leads to the next where it's like you learn a few chords and then you try to learn a song and then learn a, enough songs to have a little set list to play for your friends at the house. And then it's play at a Mexican restaurant. And then you play it, you know, you form a band and then it's maybe I can write a song. It's just these little things that keep adding up. And then when I left University of Georgia, uh, went, I moved back home and formed a band and we played around for two or three years until I kind of, and I never did use, I had a master's degree in education and I just, I, ne I had never used it up to that point because I knew my, my long-term goal in my head was to move to Nashville. So I kind of worked some odd jobs at like an ATV store. I sold used cars, but then I was playing music at night. And I just remember going, there was, had this moment when I was 20, I guess I was 27. And I said, I need to go into a career field or I need to do this seriously and go try this in Nashville. And I uh, remember thinking, am I going to be okay if I look back at 40 and not have taken a chance to do this? Cause I can always come back home. And I'll, the answer for me was no, I can't, I can't take that chance of not doing this. So packed my stuff up. I knew one person in Nashville who played bass with me for a long time, moved on May the 12th, 2014. And uh, here we are today. So we'll get back to the interview in just a moment, but first, now, back to the podcast. I have a, look, a somewhat of a similar story about Eric. I don't know if you know my story with him, but, I mean, he's, he's one of those three or four guys I can count on one hand that if I have a major life decision, that's who I'm calling. Yeah. And uh, we are extremely close friends, and, and I adore him, and I, I maintain he saved my life, and that's why – I admire guys like you so much because I believe songwriting is one of those uh, one of those skill sets that can save a life. Doctors do right. and first responders do, yep. but songwriting does too. And he saved mine after I lost my dad. I was lost and listless and so hurt. And yep. it was visceral hurt. I mean, it was yep. soulful hurt. That old SOB pulled me up out of the doldrums with, with his amazing talent. And That's awesome. And he ain't stopped. My God Almighty, no, he ain't he stopped. He is, man, he's, he's, he's a freak, dude. He's a freak. He's the very best, in my opinion. I agree with that. I will concur with that statement. When did you meet Luke? So I'm at Luke Combs, and, and uh, it's funny. We, when I moved to town, um, I knew one person, and then I met another guy that he kind of moved like the same day as me. And he, I didn't know at the time, but he happened to actually know Luke. And so, we went the, the third, fourth day that I was in town was my birthday. And so me and this guy went to like Buffalo Wild Wings for my birthday. Big he, outing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, do you want to come back to my apartment? My buddy's coming in town. He's recording a few songs tomorrow. He's staying on the couch. We'll just hang out. So we go back to his apartment and the, the buddy who was staying with him was Luke Combs, which is crazy. And so Luke and I hung out that night, maybe exchanged numbers. And then he, moved, he, he was just staying for the weekend. Well, he moved, that was in May. He moved in September. So when he got back, I saw him at like one of the writers' rounds one night. And I was like, "Hey, man, good to see you again," and all that. Well, then we just became kind of 
friends and we we bonded over going by Eric Church, bonded over those old Eric Church songs and those first couple albums and uh, and then we really just became friends first. We started playing Madden together at his, at his apartment <laughs> and then we as we talked about songs and songwriting and all that we were like man it feels like we, we're into the same type of stuff so why we should probably try to write some songs. So we wrote every Tuesday for a year and a half. Did you really? Mm-hmm. We did and we uh every Tuesday for a year and a half. And we, um, the first song we ever wrote was beer can, which was on his first record. And then let's see, now we have, uh, 17 songs that we've written together that he's recorded and four number ones. So, yeah. I, you know, I, I just, I sit here and shake my head because I'm well versed enough about how that town operates that, the you're a unicorn i mean the the yeah. anomaly that you are and certainly that he is oh yeah he is, is 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 speaking of unicorns i mean i mean he he has one of the most fantastic amazing stories that that town's ever seen oh yeah Be, because in a time when you guys started writing that stuff and the and the kind of stuff you were writing it was so foreign from what was on the radio and what labels were pushing totally. commercially totally why do you think that that sort of retro, I mean, I would call it mid nineties almost yeah. sound. Why did it work? I think, I mean, my thought on it is because we didn't know what we were doing and we were <laughs> because we didn't like, we kept trying to write these songs that publishers would want and they kept being like, well, they're not good enough and stuff. And they're like, you need to try this or try that. And we really didn't know, we couldn't figure out how like the game worked or how these songs were supposed to be. So what we decided to do was, hey man, let's write some songs that we, that we believe in and that we love. And at the end of the day, if we're proud of them, at least we got that to hold on to. But we don't want to spend our time here writing stuff we don't believe in, just chasing whatever trend is going on. So we just set out to write songs that we love, to write the ideas and the type of songs that we love. And then it just, it just happened to be the thing that people were starving for at the time. Yeah, so, so for those of you guys listening that may not know, so Luke really broke. I mean, he really broke with when it rains, it pours. I mean, mm-hmm. that's when it, the dam broke for Luke Combs, right. and it's just been a flood since then. Yeah. And Ray wrote that song with Luke. They wrote it together. What was your expectation? Because it's just so brilliant, and it's so – Perfect. It's just perfect. And in that moment, I'm such a loser. I remember when I heard that song for the first time. Yeah. I was pressure washing the second floor deck in my old house. Oh, wow. And it, I had it on one of the streaming services. I don't know what it was. And it's just, you know how that algorithm works. It just kind of sends you to another song that's similar. And this thing comes on, and the first few bars, I was like, I don't know what the hell this is, but I like it. And then it just kept going and going and going. And it was funny. Yeah. And it has an awesome melody. Like, it's just an awesome song. What, what, how did well, that happen? Whose idea was it? Well, it was Luke's, it was Luke's, idea, Luke's title, When It Rains It Pours. But at first, because Luke and I are suckers for writing a sad song, too. At first, we thought of it as like a sad idea. And then the other writer with us, Jordan Walker, his name comes oh. up. Um, he goes, man, what if we, I know that sound. He's like, when you look at that, you think sad. It's like when it rains, it pours. But what if we flip that on its head and make it a positive thing? And once we kind of figured that out, that's what, that's kind of was the turning point for that idea. And then we just started 
in the next four hours, we just, we just laughed and made up this, we said, let's make up, let's make up the best day possible for this guy. Let's make him have the very best day possible. Let's just build that day. And then at the end of it, you know, Luke didn't even have a record deal then. So at the end of it, we had, I, I personally didn't have any expectation except hopefully Luke cuts it and puts it out and maybe it'll do good on Spotify or Apple, you know, Apple music or, or, or not, I don't even think that exists at the time, iTunes or whatever. Um, and thank you, know, just being like, that was a fun day. We got to laugh. We wrote a cool song. It's throwback. And then didn't think a whole lot more of it until Luke gets a record deal. And then, uh, says he's going to put that song on the record, which is awesome. And then I remember getting a call in May of, May of 2017 from his record label saying that, uh, that was going to be the next single. And then I, after hurricane. And, uh, so I called Jordan and I was like, Hey, you know, when it rains, it pours, it's going to be Luke's next single. And he was like, shut up, dude. Like, <laughs> Were y'all freaking like, out? He's like, man, he's like, I'm going to come over there and kick your ass. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I know you're, I know you're messing with me. And I was like, dude, I don't know what to tell you other than this is the call I just got. And he's like, are you for real, man? And I was like, yeah. So once he finally came around and I was telling the truth, he was like, meet me at Losers at six o'clock. Let's go get hammered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you follow that up with, I've, I've texted you a million times yeah. about even though I'm leaving. Yeah. God bless. I can't hardly even listen to the last verse of that song even still. And it just, it's so cool to see the versatility that you guys have together. Right. The way you're able to weave through all those different emotions. How important is that to you guys to kind of keep that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, we've always felt it's important to like, you know, to be versatile in the sense of, of, Hey, whatever we're feeling that day or whatever, you know, whatever some one of us has gone through or whatever, like, let's not be afraid to go there. Let's not make it all about, you know, not every song we write needs to be, you know, 125 beats a minute, just screamer, you know, like a loving on you type thing. You know, not everyone needs to be something that's going to make you cry. But like when the feeling takes us there, let's just go all the way there. So we just kind of let the, the mood that day kind of dictate that. But it is fun to be able to those life songs and those things that really can affect people are fun to, you know, to really dive in. And like I said, hopefully in some ways that song has helped some people heal out there. Oh, there's no question. You know, so yeah, it's never been a thing where we, where we say, Hey, we wrote this kind of song last time. Let's write this one. We just, we, whatever the, the best idea or the best or our moods taking us that day, we just try to, we try to take that, grab onto it and do the best we can with it that day. So I think I've seen you at a couple of his shows in the past. And I think I, I saw you when I went over, saw Langston play last year uh, right. in Nashville as well. Mm -hmm. What's it like for you when you're there and you're not performing, you're just having a couple cold ones and, and watching, but you see every single person, like in Luke's case, it could be 20,000 people. They're singing words that you wrote and had no expectation for other than to have a good time with your buddies and just see, but it, there's so much joy in those people singing yeah. the words that came out of here and here. It is. I can't imagine how that feels. I, I envy you for that. It's wild, man. It's, it's so, it's so validating. And so like, just, it just makes you, it makes you feel. Cause I mean, there's some times where in the first couple of years and even, I mean, I tell this story all the time, 
Luke and I used to go up to his with his, I think, 94 Dodge Neon to the McDonald's and get four McChickens that were a dollar a piece while we were writing the songs for that album because back then, before all that happened, I mean, it was a tough time. So it's like, you remember those moments and then you, you know, you kind of put them up beside these moments with, you know, 30,000 people singing. You're like, okay, all the, all the work, all the grinding that it took to get from there to here was all worth it. You know, four McChickens. Four McChickens, yeah, two apiece. <laughs> Damn, man. For about four dollars and forty cents. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, it's just crazy to me. Like when when you're uh and you guys again, you even kind of have it different than a lot of guys do. Hell, it takes some guys 12, 15 years just to kind of yeah. break. I know. I'm and, very blessed in that sense. I just can't, I just, it, it, the town amazes me. The entire culture and the whole way the industry works just fascinates me. I got a couple more and I'll let you run, but. Oh, you good. You also work with a brilliant producer. Uh, I right. love Singleton. I think that he's just the damn man. I love oh, his gosh. writing ability. I loved him as an artist. I don't know why he stopped cutting songs. Why did he do that? I think that he, he got the artist thing out of the system. He just. Well, he's got a sweet wife and a couple boys, and he got a record deal and kind of just never really quite got the momentum he wanted. And I think that by the end of that kind of record deal cycle, it was just on his heart that he just wanted to write songs and be with his home with his family on the weekends, which I don't blame him there. I don't blame him one bit either because it's such a grind being an artist. Oh, I my mean, gosh. All the, all the touring media y'all have to do yep. and the gripping and grinning and the that don't even include the – writing and recording and totally i just i can't imagine what what it's like so with covid when do you think y'all are going to be able to go play shows again i think it looks like probably spring of next year i think i mean how's that affected everybody that all your buddies it's been yeah it's been up and down i mean some guys have have uh you know luckily my my staff and all is small enough from the artist side to where i can kind of help keep them them guys afloat and stuff. But, you know, some guys that haven't been as fortunate, you know, are, are having to work odd jobs and trying to do anything to kind of, you know, keep their head afloat. So it's been a, it's, yeah, it's been a weird, tough time in Nashville. That's why I'm so blessed to have some of this songwriting success to where, you know, it's, that's one thing kind of that I haven't had to, to, to worry about during, during COVID, but a lot of people have. And, you know, there's some good programs in Nashville that's kind of helped with that. And I think, you know, there was a lot of some online kind of charity shows and stuff. And it's just really changed the game as far as you can still get in front of people, but it's all like online stuff. And, yep. You know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's been a trying time in Nashville. But I think it sets us up for a big 2021. So It's going to be a huge 2021. I, I've said to everybody who will listen, I don't care who plays the first show. Right. I don't, I'm, I'm going. going. I don't I care do. where in the hell it is. I don't. Laney and I are packing it up and we're going to wherever it is because that was a substantial emotional void for us this summer. Oh yeah. We go to shows in the summer. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. We go see Stapleton two or three times. We go see Eric. We go see, you know, whoever, Aldine Chesney, whoever that is. Right. And it was a, it was a notable, noticeable emotional void for us. Same. I mean, same for us, not playing. You know, it's so weird. You know, it was so weird when we were, because I was on tour with Matt Stell at the time when it happened, and uh, to just be pulled, we were kind of up in New England, pulled straight off tour, 
And uh, man, it was it was wild. I ain't been out since, right? Been since, no. Nope. Let me ask you. Let's go back to your uh, your dogs days mm -hmm. for a second. When you're working with those quarterbacks, I've seen a photograph of you and Stafford. You and yep. Matt Stafford there together. Were you ever the guy who like had to catch? Oh. Who, who like had to warm him up? Absolutely, and I. Because that's you. a rocket on the side of that man's arm or is, body. That is unbelievable. And until you like go catch it, it's like you watch it on TV and you're like, "Oh my gosh!" But when you catch it and you take one to the ribs, it's like, man, I mean, you can't imagine. The thing would just knock your breath out. And so, yeah, I was, I would be the guy he'd warm up with, and then I would go run routes on air, kind of while they're waiting on the receivers doing their kind of indie drill or whatever, and. I mean, I would go run a curl route and turn around and, you know, it's – I run the route and turn around and it's two yards from me and it hits you in the sternum and you're like, glad you didn't die because it's, you know, <laughs> you might catch it, but it's just kind of a, a cradle thing. And, man, it is a it is a full-time job to catch those balls from him. <laughs> He's got a cannon, dude. He does. He does. Do y'all stay in touch? Are, are y'all? Yeah, so, you know, interestingly enough, he doesn't, he doesn't have Instagram, but I keep in touch with him through his wife. Cause she does, and uh, cause he changed, you know, he changed the number since Athens. I'm sure a few times, but uh, but we do, and I still keep in touch with Coach Bobo and Joe Cox and and some of the other guys on the team as well. I just saw Bobo. I had uh, Florida and South Carolina on oh, Saturday. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a trip. Yeah. He is a trip, man. He's one of my favorite people. Look, man, uh, I'm so grateful for your time, and oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled for your success and. You're just getting started, brother. You are going to do great things as an artist. I know that's that's kind of your dream. and yep. But your ability to write has impacted my life so much and so many millions of other people. Thank and you, so man. Thank you for sharing your talent and, and your friendship. And I can't wait to come to a show soon. Toss a couple cold ones back, bro. Let's do. Hey, thank you so much for having me on, man. That's crazy. Isn't that a stupidest story you've ever heard in your life? like you go out for your birthday to b-dubs and then you go back and you meet some person that you meet an alien yeah i mean you meet an alien like luke combs is an alien he's a i mean it, it's like you it's like if oh i went back to buddy's house and uh lebron james was there right like, i mean that's that's not a bad analogy because i mean those those guys walked into town and the time increment for them to become superstars and to write not just hit songs, but number one songs. Ray has four number one songs. I don't know if y'all understand what that means. First of all, it means he's rich. Second, there are writers who go their entire, I mean, like phenomenal writers who go their whole career and never reach the top of the charts. And he's done it four times and done it with an artist who is one of the, I mean, the hottest smoke. He, look, you, it could be argued that Luke Combs is the most successful country artist in the last 15 years because he's, he's, he's a rock star because of the, I mean, his commercial success is unrivaled in recent Nashville. But think about so, this, Marty. Ray, on his birthday, could have easily said, I don't want to go back to some random house and have a beer. Let's go out, try to pick up some girls or whatever. You know, let's get drunk and rowdy. And just the pure luck of everything to break that way, you know, 
you know, obviously the work that he's put in isn't luck, but just that timing to meet Luke like that. And he's the nicest guy ever. And so is Luke for that matter. Guys like those two guys who are universally loved, not only among the consumers of their music, but the industry, but the town. It's like John Party. All right. John Party is going to be a mega star. He's already a star. He's going to be a mega star in country music. You will not hear one single person in that entire town say one ill word about John Party. I forget what we were at. We were at a, an award show many years ago before anybody ever heard John Party's name, at least outside of Nashville. I was at a, 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 a party at a bar that was thrown by Eric's management company, Q Prime. And there was this old boy there. All of the people that worked at Q Prime came over there like, you see that dude right there? Yep, that's John Party. Okay, who the hell's John Party? The funniest guy in Nashville. We all love him so much. He's going to be a big, he's going to be a star. Okay. I saw John Party open up for Dirks Bentley at the Allen County Fair where that's my hometown. And I instantly was like, keep an eye on this guy's name. Big time star. He, he, he just had that, you hear one of those songs and you're just like, there's something there. And if, if everything breaks right, you know, he's going to be a star. Just, just a big time star. And and I think Ray has all the opportunity to do the same thing because if you're writing songs like that and getting to cut songs like that, again, it doesn't, yeah, the song is called Love Your Son, Go Dogs. And it's about Georgia football, but it's not. You could, you could insert any mascot. You could insert any team. Any mascot, any team. And it's not about that, really. What it is is it's that father-son relationship. It is the like it breaks my heart because it's about how you are bonded to your father through sport, and then you go on and live your life, and you get busy, and that relationship changes, and your relationships expand, and you become you have friends or you have girlfriends, and then you get married and you have children and you're a professional, and you're, you're spread thin, and you don't talk to your dad every day anymore. He desperately wants that as your father. That's what he wants. He wants to spend that time with you. And sometimes you got the time. Sometimes you don't have the time. Sometimes you wish you were making the time and don't. And, and he calls you, and he's telling you the whole update from the small town. I sold that truck. I saw your buddies at the fish fry. And we solved all the world's problems. Talked about the old days all night. The whole thing. Man, I love you, son. Go Bucks. Go Dogs. Go Hokies. Roll Tide. War Dam. It's all of those. It's just a gorgeous song. It's a gorgeous song. And I meant to ask him, and I forgot to ask him. Maybe I'll have to text him and find out. My guess is it was either Al Dean or Luke Bryan when he said a bigger artist had it on hold because those guys are both Georgia Bulldog fanatics and it fits right in the wheelhouse of their brands. So we'll see if, he'll, uh, if Ray writes me back. He's busy. He's got, a, he's got a life. He ain't got time to be texting me back right now. But since we have two guests this week, 
we figured we were, we actually considered not doing ass Marty. But Travis says that it's so popular, unbelievably popular, that we should do at least one Ask Marty question. Yeah, we, we can't, you know. We can't leave our people we, hanging. We've got to give the fans something. We've had a couple of good ones. So this week, uh, we're going to go to uh, at, I don't even know how, how to pronounce his last name, Jacob Feff. What's your favorite board or card game to play with the family? Cards Against Humanity. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Have you ever played that game, Travis? Love that game. Yeah. Obviously, you're not going to be playing it with. Not one I want to play with my 11- and 8-year-old daughters. No. My favorite game to play with my kids. One I love playing with my kids, I guess, is Candyland. Like, my girls love Candyland. Now, I tried really hard to engage Cameron in learning how to play chess when he was younger. It's hard to keep a young boy's attention for long enough to learn how to play chess. So that didn't go over so well, and we will revisit that at some point when his attention span is a little longer. Actually, he's 14 now, so it might be time. I love the game of chess personally. Um, I played it my whole life. I'm a total chess nerd. I was on the chess team, the whole thing. Uh, When I was in middle school or maybe early high school one, we were really good, man. The, the, the GHS chess team was bad to the bone, dude. My buddy Jason Barillo, who graduated number one in my class, I think he's now a physician in Houston. JB was the number one ranked player in the state. Bones, who, of course, as you all know, uh, is the trainer for the Tampa Bay Rays now. My best childhood buddy. We grew up four doors apart. Bones was ranked number three in the state. I think we had another kid that was maybe Kevin Minnick or one of them was like 10th in the state. Where were you ranked? I was in the top 15, I think. I was pretty good, man. What, I used to have so much anxiety. If any of y'all out there are chess nerds, when they would do a chess clock, so you had this clock that they sat beside the chess board. It was almost like a shot clock. And so it had these two knobs on it. And after you made your move, you had to hit the clock to put the next person on the clock. That dang clock gave me so much anxiety. Anytime some, you know, higher ranked player in the state, I'd be playing against somebody who was better and they'd bust out their clock. And I, my anxiety would go through the roof. So if your clock expires before the game ends you lose i don't remember what the clock did i I have no idea what the clock i've no i I can't play chess i've never tried to learn and i've never understood the clock so i was hoping years ago i went to hollywood beach florida and sat on the beach with michael vick and played chess against michael vick and the reason that i did that was i learned that and this is in Never Settle, my book. I wrote an entire chapter on this story that y'all should read. It's fascinating. About how when Michael Vick was in Leavenworth Prison for 23 months after the dogfighting scandal, he did not do, like, he didn't, like, lift weights or play basketball to satiate his competitive drive. He played chess. 
to satiate his competitive drive. He met a guy named Nino in the prison and requested from Nino, hey, man, I, I would love to kind of learn what y'all are doing. They had like a league in there. And so Vic got really good at chess. And I fancied myself that I was really good at chess. Now, I was rusty when I played Mike. And he waxed the floor with me, dude. He, he ran me off the board. And I felt like I was paying attention pretty well. I will admit, and he admitted this too, that it was very difficult to stay engaged and focused. Chess is not a game of focusing on the move you're making. Chess is a game of considering four moves after that move and anticipating what your opponent is going to do. And when you're going through your life story, especially like Michael was, talking about his emotional, mental, personal rehabilitation after that dogfighting scandal, uh, it was hard for both of us to focus. So it wasn't a real game, but even because of that, I can promise you, he would have beat me so bad if we were playing for real. Risk was a game that I loved playing when I was younger. What was it You're, called? Risk. Oh, risk. Yeah, risk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We played that a bunch. Then when I was back home this summer, my sister and her two kids were there. And so they wanted to play Monopoly. And trying to teach a 10-year-old how to play Monopoly. It's too much. It's a lot. And he's, like, trying to offer up trades to his sister. And I'm like, Brandon, what are you doing? He's like, I want, to, I want that, that property. I go, but why? He goes, I just think it's cool. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. I think it's cool. But So, yeah. So I'm going to revisit chess with Cameron at some point. Have you ever heard of a skip bow? Oh, yeah. Played that a Laney, lot up. Lainey went through about a three- or four-year phase where she was addicted to skip bow. And she taught it to Mia and I think to Vivi. And uh, to, she definitely taught it to Cameron and Mia. And so they play it. Again, we love Candyland. What are uh, shoots and ladders? The card game that I love, and I never played this as a kid. It's more of your older is Euchre. See, I don't even know what that is. You brought that up one other time, didn't you? It's a good – you just need four people, and it's you're only playing cards nine through ace. Those are the only cards that you're playing with. I'm not a card game guy. Never have it's, been. It's a great game where you just, you know, you're sitting out back on the patio having some cold ones. We got to say one more thing. Big shout-out to Woo Pig Suey. Big shout-out yes. to our guy Sam Pittman. And our boy, Barry Odom. Massive shout-out to my boy, Barry Odom. Man, hey, what a great job he did putting together his game plan for the air raid. And Woo Pig wins its first SEC game since 2017. I'm I, uh, thrilled for those guys. So I have a buddy that is from Arkansas, went to Arkansas, and so – when Arkansas was about to start taking some knees, I go to FaceTime him. He doesn't answer, and, all I, get, and I get a text back, not yet. I go, ha, ha. He goes, they can still F this up. I'm not, getting, <laughs> I'm not getting my hopes up. And then that's, and then right after that was where they had a penalty that stopped the clock. And so then when I called him, I just get a giant woo pig from him. Speaking of woo pig, uh, we have a really special show this week because not only – did we have the amazing opportunity to hang out with Ray Fulcher, which, by the way, he did just text me back, and it was Luke Bryan who had Love You Son, Go Dogs on hold. Thank God for Ray that Luke didn't cut that song because it would have – that thing, no question, would have gone to number one. 
Oh, and, no doubt. And speaking of Woo Pig and Luke Bryan, for that matter, we got another guest. So let's bring him in. It is, I don't even know how to introduce this dude. It's American Idol contributor, Dancing with the Stars winner, radio, uh, what is, radio what? Radio like, host. He's, I think he's got a podcast. I mean. Yeah, he's everywhere. He was doing stuff for the NFL draft when it was in Nashville. He, he does everything. You remember, remember Ray Stevens? You're too young for this, but some of you guys listening may remember this. Some of, some of my old trucker buddies who were hauling that stuff up and down the highway for us. First of all, we appreciate y'all. A lot of truckers listen to Marty Smith's America. Did you know that? They seem like that. They're, those are our people. Yeah. Uh, they'll remember Ray Stevens. So Ray Stevens had a song about Santa Claus when I was a kid. And in that song, he goes, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. That's Bobby Bones. So that's who it is. Our second interview this week is with all of the things I just mentioned, Bobby Bones. All right, Bobby, we're going to start where I imagine you want to start, and that's Woo Pig. Uh, for the first time <laughs> since 2017, your Arkansas Razorbacks are SEC winners. Paint me a picture, dude. How'd you react? Did you lose your mind? I hate that I lost my mind. Like I'm, we just haven't been in a good spot for years. And I am I, every statement. game, win or lose, I mean, I am right there. And I felt pretty good about it going into it, honestly, even though Mississippi State's good. We, you know, we kind of have their number, maybe not in the last few years, but we've had nobody's number in the last few years. <laughs> but there's just a – it's a development with, with, with Sam Pittman where you know the foundation is getting stronger. You know, you don't know about anything else yet, but you knew the foundation was getting there, so I was pumped. Yeah, I, I, pumped is an understatement. I love Pittman. And I, Barry Odom, their defensive coordinator, is like a brother. Uh, I love those guys so much. And it's so cool to see the joy that they had. I mean, it had been 20 – it was a 20-game losing streak in the conference, man. Yeah, it's tough. You know, when you're from Arkansas like I am, that's, what we, that's all we have. We don't have a pro team, none. There's not a single pro football, basketball, baseball team. All we have is the Razorbacks. So when the Razorbacks are really good, the whole team, the whole state is up and pumped. When they're, when they're competitive, we're in it. But, man, the state is sad whenever we don't have something to really get behind. You know, basketball has been down until last year with Muslim. Basketball has been down too. So, you know, for us to have two programs – really starting to climb back in, you know, it's great. Well, you know, that, that's what we have, the hogs. What do you remember about like 40 minutes of hell when you were a kid? Scotty Thurman I remember Corliss Williamson and Lee Mayberry. They had some dudes, man. Yeah, they did. And Corey Beck, who played point guard for them, who yep. doesn't get, you know, a, a lot of attention. But, man, he ran that show. And he was gritty. I remember Oliver Miller dominating Shaq, oddly enough. Of what I remember most, it's, you Big know, I remember – Duke, yeah, beating in, in UCLA, losing that. But I just remember Oliver Miller, that every time we'd play Shaq, he would perform his brains out. Um, obviously, they, it worked out differently when they both went pro. But that's what I remember about – you know, I was a, a 11, 12 years old at the time. So, um, it was right when I started to really be extremely involved. So, you interviewed Carol Baskin. Man, that's a, that's a trip. What did you learn about her? I don't think she killed her husband. That's the you thing. I, Come on, a, man. You no, don't. I don't. I'm going to tell you why. This is why I think I watched the Tiger King just like everybody else did. But you know as well as I do, 
you only get one person's perspective whenever something is being shot or filmed, and that's the person who that's that that's the person who's creating the narrative. And you, they made her a villain on that show. They made us all feel like she murdered her husband, but there's really nothing to prove that she did. For and I was telling the folks that I work with on my Nat Geo show and my radio show because we've been talking about it on both sets. And it's like, would you want someone if they didn't know for sure to be saying that you murdered somebody? And I, so I, I fell on the side of I'm not going to do. It. I'm not going to accuse her of killing her husband. And now all these stories have come out about people that were working with her husband or ha- have been claiming that they had killed him. You know, I don't think she did. I think she's a kind woman. I don't know that I love what she's doing with the tigers. I'm not sure yet. I don't like zoos because I'm a big animal guy. I, I don't like zoos, and I'm not sure if what she's doing is great for the tigers or awful for the tigers, but I do not think she killed her husband. What would you make of Tiger King? All I think about now is that's when Corona started. I mean, I, you know how you associate certain yeah. things to childhood, yeah. you, you know, food or, or like a person. Like when I think of Tiger King now, I have a negative feeling just about that experience. I did it then. I liked it. I was, it was a car wreck, and I wanted to keep watching the episodes. But now I just – that was when coronavirus was starting, and we were first starting to get locked down, and we were probably going to be locked up for a couple of weeks, and we couldn't believe it. And later, you know, it ended up being months. But that's what I think of Tiger King now. I kind of have that pit in my stomach where it's – Oh, no, I had no idea what was coming. So on your show, you had the opportunity to interview the, the best of the best and the most famous of the most famous. What celebrity that you know has a completely different personality than we know on the outside as consumers? So a couple. That's a, good, that's a really good question. I think the person who you would be uh, most surprised that they're extremely shy is Carrie Underwood. Like, I know her well. I love her. She's one of my favorite people. And she's so great on television. She's, she has such a personality. There's, there's so much character there. But in person, if you just hang out and around her, like Carrie is such a quiet and shy person that you would think, okay, does she just hate me? And I thought that the first couple times I met her until I started to do a little more with her, you know, on the uh, like personal level. I thought, does Carrie just hate me? But she is, she is extremely shy, wonderful person, but, you know, you just wouldn't expect that. And, you know, I would also say, you know, for me, surprising uh, how, how nice and available Garth Brooks is on the countryside. I mean, Garth Brooks has sold more albums than everybody in history except the Beatles. You're talking about he is the number one United States seller of all time. He sold more than Elvis. So when Garth, Garth Brooks is like, hey, come over, my, like my girlfriend went over to his house and rode horses just a few weeks ago. The guy is just so open and giving, and you would think someone that is such a super superstar would not be. Those are the two that probably come to my mind. So, all right, Garth Brooks' catalog is untouchable, right? Like, it's just stupid. But I was so – all right, full disclosure, Bobby. So, Eric Church is one of my best friends on the planet, okay? So, when Garth won Entertainer of the Year at the CMAs over Eric, I lost it. I lost my mind, Bobby. I was cussing. I was raising hell. I was ticked off. How did you react when they said Garth's name? Well, and do you understand all, how Entertainer of the Year is devised? Like, do you understand how that's determined? Yeah, yeah. I, I know it all. I vote on it. I'm on board. Here, here okay, you go. Explain you have every me. right to be. You have every right to be upset about Eric Church not winning, right? Every you have every right. Um, however. I thought Kerry was going to win it, honestly. Um, yeah, I, think, I think all those and, guys did too. All the nominees did yeah, too, I think. 
I thought Kerry was – because for me, Entertainer of the Year is – and I said this on the air too, even to Garth. Like, I thought Kerry was winning. I thought she should – She. I thought she deserved to win. But here's the thing about Entertainer of the Year. There is no real definition of how it's, how it's picked. Is it to, If it's just playing great live shows, to, I mean, Eric Church and Garth are the leaders in that for sure. Nobody does a bigger show than Garth, but nobody does a better show than Church. Mm-hmm. If it's being – like a Luke Bryan who is on American Idol, who has more radio hits than anybody else, who's also touring up in the, in the top 3%. So my argument always is most of the time that it's hard to fight against anyone unless you're just best friends with the artist that lost, which I'm already hearing the case you were. So I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to say you're wrong. I thought, you know, Eric could have got – at the ACMs recently, Eric could have been jobbed there. People feel that way too when uh, Thomas Wright and Carrie Thomas Underwood wanted Carrie, there. Yep. So, you know, also, I'll tell you this, it's very political. It's to the point, too, where when you're voting on these things, record labels block votes. They won't admit it. I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but record labels, management companies, and the bigger of the organization that you're with, and they have more votes, and they, they all go, hey, we're going to you know, kind of quietly go on on this person. It's hard, it, it's hard to beat those, especially if you're on a mid to small label. So there are a lot of factors that go into the award shows. Um, but you're absolutely right. Eric, by the way, I love Eric too. I live right down the road from him, but I'm telling you, it's hard to fight against any of them because they're all special in their own way. Well, there's no debating that. Now I, I agree with you hundred percent on that. So, so labels will be like, Hey, I'm going to vote on your person. I got you. That's how that works. Well, labels can vote on their person, right? So let's say, you know, John Smith is on the American record label. Every executive that has a, a vote there, everybody that works there, they're all going to go vote for their guy. You want your own to succeed. It's like a, a you know, when, when someone's, you know, up for an award and, and people in college football can vote. You know, you. Mm-hmm. you yep. I vote for vote the Heisman. So for the I most understand. Part, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it, you know, it's very much that. But I will say they do a good job of, of getting most of the finalists right. You know, so other, like Aldine gets screwed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Blake yep. Shelton gets screwed Chesney a little bit. Chesney gets screwed every year. Been, yeah, I mean Chesney got two, Chesney got Angelina Jolie, where you know she was winning the hottest person every every year, every year to the point where people went, we're tired of Angelina because she's been the winner forever. The same thing with Chesney; he just won so much that people went, we gotta make a move, and that's not his fault. That's, it's the opposite of his fault. He did so good, he's kind of penalized himself. But I would love to be in that situation more than more than the other. Yeah, no doubt. So you mentioned Idol with Luke a minute ago. Uh, you, you have a role on that show. You won Dancing with the Stars. You're on these award shows everywhere. A lot of people that consume your show and, and, and whatnot and, and know about your life know a lot about your life. Tell me something about you that we don't know. It can be the most – it can be the smallest thing in the world, but what don't we know? What don't – it'd have to be something super intimate because, you know, I've been pretty open about my story. I mean, mm-hmm. I tore – I ride the Peloton. Uh, I try to ride a few times a week, and I tore the top of my butthole on that bike. And I didn't really did? talk about that very much. I thought it was. I did. I was riding. I was going too hard. And I. You ever had a fissure on your, like a tear? I never had anything like it. I thought I was dying. First of all, um, I, I go to the doctor, and I'm like, Yeah, I think this is it for me. I got blood coming out of my butt. What uh, they happened? Have to stick fingers in. I think I just got a little aggressive with jump, hopping back on the seat. I train hard, Marty. I go hard at everything I do. And so I tore my butthole, and I had to put so every day, every six hours, I had to re-lotion like lotion 
my butt. I think that's a pretty unknown thing. And other than that, I'm pretty, I'm a pretty open book with everything on the air. So, all right. So I'm a, wow. I, I have a Peloton as well. I just got off of it right, right before I started taping the podcast here. And I go pretty damn hard did, too. But did so, you tear so your, did you your like butthole. slip? Like, did you slip? Or yeah, did no, you no. Sit I did. I, well, you know how you have to sit down on the seat? You have to, you know, yeah. you're up and down. And I went down, and I think I just misjudged where the corner oh of the seat God. was and hit a little too hard. Bro, I, I, I'm holding my butt I, right now. Like, that hurts. That, 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 that yeah. must have been brutal. Yeah, it hurt. I've hurt myself a couple times on that bike. Once I was going so hard before, I was going so hard that I had, I, again, I had blood come out. That didn't tear anything, but my insides were so messed up, I started uh, peeing blood. Bobby, I don't, I don't know a whole lot, brother, but you – it might be time to just make maybe just I appreciate going full tilt, but maybe just ratchet it back to to ninety eight percent. I got that lecture. Don't worry, I got that lecture from my girlfriend. She was like, "You need to uh, CTFO, chill that, and you got you know the other yeah. two. Yep, I, I know that fo. Uh, so, your your story is amazing, but as I've studied it before this interview and everything, I kind of wonder like, who was Bobby Estelle? Who was that little guy? Oh man, you know it's funny to, because I'll be on my with my therapist because I go to a therapist now and sometimes she'll have me hold a picture up of myself when I was five or six years old and talk to that kid and, you know, when I'm five, six, seven years old, you know, my mom was an alcoholic and an addict and I didn't really have much of a relationship with her. My dad had left. Uh, I was kind of bouncing around a little bit. My grandmother adopted me for for a while, but. You know, as a kid, I, I never had any sense of, of home or stability. And, and as I grew up, and, you know, my mom ended up dying in her 40s. And it, it, was all, it was all a struggle. But as I look back at it now, that kid went through so much but learned so much that I'm so proud of now. Like, I, I look at it at this point in my life as a blessing to have had that struggle, gotten through it, and be where I am now. I resented it, Marty, for so long. I was so upset. I was like, other kids have dads. Other kids have moms that are available. And, and by the way, don't take this that I didn't love my mom. She had an issue that, you know, you grew up near an area where I grew up. And, and it's tough. It is tough. And there's meth and opioids. And they're dominating where we're from. And, you know, that was happening right in front of my eyes. I think about me as a kid. And for some reason, I always knew the only way I was going to get out of that situation it was, was to learn, was to read books. And so that's what I did. I just, I, I learned as much as I could. I, I used to save up money and I would go to food for less, which was the grocery store. And so I'd go and mow yards around the neighborhood and I would go to food for less and buy an encyclopedia. Cause they had them like A to B, B to B L. Mm-hmm. And I, I, eventually I bought the whole, every encyclopedia and I read every single one of them. So that's who I was as a kid. I was a little fighter, didn't have every meal, but, man, I, I knew one day I was not only going to have all the meals for myself, but I was going to help provide them for so many people that were going through what I had been through. How would you know that? I don't know, man. I think God put something in me on it. I, I don't know. I think back about that, too. And that's what's amazing to see. Like, I look at kids now that are, that are going through the fight, and I see them doing amazing things. And I think to myself the same thing. Like, how are these kids knowing how to lead their lives in such positive ways when they have no positive influences? And what I hope is people said and and say the same thing about me. But I don't know. I think we're all born with gifts, and hopefully we use them in the right way. And 
I think that's the path I'm on right now. What led Bobby Estelle to Bobby Bones? And I know that the name was given to you in college or, or whatnot, but, but who, what are the difference between those two people? What led, what, what led that little boy to this person now who's infused with confidence? Well, I tell you that it's a couple things, you know, and, and, and not to get all weepy on you again, but I think Bobby Bones is just someone who wanted to be loved. And so I found that I was pretty freaking funny and – that when I performed, if it was stand-up or, or music or being on the radio, that that's where I really got love. That's where it, was, that's where it would come to me consistently, and I never had it. And so as the, the Bobby Bones, which I don't think is a character, I think of it as a slightly amplified version. Because mm-hmm. um, you know this, too. When you, when you get on camera and you're on, you know, you got to be on just a little bit more than you would be if you're just hanging out at no the house. No question, man. No and, question. So I, I feel like when I learned to do that and people showed attention or gave me love, I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for my whole life. And so, and that can get you in trouble too. But I think that's, that's, that's what the, the difference was is, you know, I, I found what I was good at and I was going to squeeze every bit out of it that I possibly could. And, you know, and, I mean, here I am now. It, I, it sounds to me like, and I know how you work – really diligently in philanthropy and and you care about all of that stuff how much is your is all the work you're doing a platform more than a purpose because for me i'm in year 14 at espn and a couple years ago i became much less insecure i battled a lot of insecurities and those types of things and the, the insecurities were manifested through ego and hard work and all those things for a long time for me. And I realized a couple of years ago that ESPN is a tremendous blessing, but it's just a platform for a bigger purpose. And because the reach is so massive and so many people see us all the time, that it's incumbent upon us to be kind to other people and to give, to show that we give so much effort and to be passionate beyond deniability in everything we do because that's paying it forward. And uh, I wonder if you kind of experienced that, like all this success you've had, is that a platform now or is it, is it still kind of a purpose as well? I think it's a, a hybrid. I know that for me, um, like I work with hospitals now a lot, like St. Jude or, or Vanderbilt or Arkansas Children's Hospital because I was in the hospital as a kid, almost – I, you know, I, I, I was hurt really badly, in, you know, internally. But I do that because of that, right? I feel like I'm very selfish in my philanthropy where I work with a lot of pet charities because I just love my freaking dog. It's all very me-centric. Um, so I yeah, feel that's like – that's okay. I, I mean, pro- if, you're, if you're impacting other people's lives or, or, or even making a home better for, for an animal, that's still a selfless deed. I feel like the net gain is good. I don't know that it's selfless for me. I struggle with that sometimes, but I do use my platform. I, I'm the opposite of Charles Barkley when I was a kid. When he said that he was not a role model, I know that I am a role model. Mm-hmm. And when you're, when you're lifted high on, on a platform, on your pedestal, people are looking at you. And the higher you go, the more people that see you. And I had people that, that gave to me and helped to me. If it was my youth group, my youth leader at church, if it was – um, later on in my life, when my stepdad came into my life, when I was a teenager, you know, there were people that came into my life that, that, that were there for me. And if it weren't for them, I wouldn't be here. And so what I want to do is 
not only be that for other people, but tell my story so other people can be that for other people. And if I'm able to kind of move that down a couple not to, to a couple different generations, that's a win for me. I have, I tell you, I grew up so poor. I have enough money right now that I can, I can be done. I don't have to work. I don't have to do any, I, I'm good. Now I don't, I think the reason that I even have money at all is because I don't care that much about money. I would be fine doing what I love because that was the plan originally. Because, again, you know as well as I do, in our, in, in our world, you don't make any money. You, you don't get into it for making money. And I never That's got true. into it. I got into it because I, I loved it. I got into it because I felt like I could get love from it. And so now I do what I do, and I try to fill my cup constantly. And my cup mostly is filled by being able to – do what people did for me. Again, it's a very me-centric world, and sometimes I feel guilty about that. But I think that, that that's kind of the answer to your question, it, that it's a bit of both. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. But first, now back to the interview. One thing I wonder about you, you're on some platform probably 24 hours a day. And as a, as a television broadcaster, I utterly despise watching or listening to myself. It's truly embarrassing but my mentors at ESPN all feel that that's a vital exercise for growth and self-analysis of how to improve game tape right how do you do with that how often do you go back and watch or listen to an interview you did or a show you did or, or whatnot it's tough uh, you know I just finished uh, I, I toured theater before corona I had I'd been touring for a year doing theaters doing stand-up I couldn't go back and listen to it, right? I could and I couldn't. We were going to uh, record a, a live uh, music because we play music in some of my stand-up shows, funny music. And so I had to go back and listen to one. And I had just been putting it off and putting it off. But going, it, it was painful. Uh, but again, like you said, I feel like I learned a lot from it. I don't think it's good for my mindset to do it all the time because I need to be in a place to perform. And if I'm constantly critiquing myself, I'm not strong enough to feel good about it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, but I don't like I'm, we're shooting my first season on my national geographic show. That's going to be out next year on Nat Geo and Disney plus. And th they've sent me footage and I can't watch it yet because I don't want to see it and be so disappointed in my performance that it hinders my performance. Yeah, so I, I walk a, I, I walk a fine line of all of being so neurotic that I'm not that good that I have to not look at it so I can feel better than I am. And then when I have to, I watch. I never listen to my radio show, ever. I can't take it. I, I, I hate the sound of my voice. I'm so over me, Marty, in every way. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I truly do hate. I hate it, man. Uh, I'm embarrassed at, at watching or listening in a lot of cases. Let so me ask I, you this. If you see you in the middle, because I'll see you on ESPN constantly. If you've, you've, you've done a segment and uh, it just happens to be rerunning on – on sports center or something later in the night and you see yourself now, will you stay on it or will you purposefully grab the remote and change it? I'll leave it there, but I'll mute it. I don't really want to know. It's, it's kind of hard to describe. And, and again, when I was, so I got put in a position last year that was extremely uncomfortable and really hit me in a lot of, of, of insecure ways that I had to host a, a show called sec nation. It's kind of like college game day for the sec network. One of our extremely talented colleagues, Laura Rutledge, was away on maternity leave, and they asked me to host the show in her uh, absentia until she got back. I had never hosted anything in my life like that. It's a hell of a show. I mean, it's a monster. And 
they wanted me, they constantly told me, you got to go back and watch it. You got it. You'll get better by watching it. And I was so mortified by, by what I saw that in a lot of cases, like I don't make a habit of looking at social media. I don't need to be told that uh, people want me to go to hell and rot in hell and all that stuff, right? <laughs> it's just not something I need in my life. But if, if there was criticism of me on social media that I did see, I would agree with them. And I didn't want to be in that insecure position where I'm like, man, I know they're right. That wasn't good. I do have to do better there. And so I don't know, man, it's a really weird psychological thing, but I just, I don't enjoy it. And I wondered where you were with it. Cause like you're everywhere. And uh, you know, you were talking about that, your national geographic show that's coming up. I saw the, the Forbes interview you did and you had this line in there that kind of struck me. You're thrilled to do the show because it's about people with stories like yours. And I know you just kind of told us about your, 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 your childhood, but if you were to, what is your story? Why is your story like those folks you're chronicling? Well, in some of the ways, it's like my background, right? We, we all come from different backgrounds. Um, I look at mine now, like I said, as a strength and, you know, not something I'm super resentful for. But some of the folks, you know, they have backgrounds like I do. Other folks, like my, my story also is I'm not that talented straight up. I don't really have a skill set that someone would just say, we got to have that guy. I couldn't be late to work five days in a row and then be like, he's so talented, we got to keep him. So, and I know that though. And so for me, it's showing up on time every time. It's having a tremendous work ethic because I can control those two things. There's not a lot of things that I can control when it comes to me and life and, and the jobs I do or don't get. But I can guarantee you I'm going to be there on time and I'm going to have a tireless work ethic. And then I also understand how much that I have failed. My second book was, was on all of that. And I had all, my friends also write little passages where it was, Hey, I don't want to hear about all the things that you've done right. I had Chris Stapleton. I had the, go the current governor of Arkansas. I had, had all these folks that have really made it big say and, and tell their story of when they didn't make it big, that it's not all roses. That, and so a lot of the folks that I'm with, too, you know, they're in places because they failed so much, but they, they didn't stop. Like regardless of what happened, they looked at every failure and every time that they didn't get it right, not as – because it sucks. And, and I'm the first one to tell you, it sucks when things don't go your way. I hate failing. However, the good thing about it is you learn. Every single time something doesn't work out for me, I make a point to take something from it. Sometimes it takes me a minute. Sometimes I, I need to get good and pissed for a month or so, but I try to pull something from it. And a lot of these, these, these guys and, and gals, you know, they did the same thing. And then some of them are just straight up inspiring. I tell you, there's, we just did a one in because I'm such a big sports guy. We just went to Denver and we played. I I played hockey with the the Paralympic U.S. hockey team. Awesome. And That's so cool. the guy that I did the story on, he was in Afghanistan, uh, lost both of his legs from an IED. And the guy, I mean, he has every reason to be angry, but instead he has channeled that and he is now a freaking boss on the U.S. Olympic team. They want a gold medal. And so I went out and, you know, this show too is me trying to compete in what they're doing. So I learn their story. I tell their story. I, I try to do what they're doing in competition, uh, especially this episode. And they beat the crap out of me. I mean, these are all military, mostly military guys. I think nine of the 10 that I was playing with and against, they're all military guys. And they didn't take it easy on me because uh, they haven't had it taken easy on them. 
it's a lot of those stories. You know, it's, it's really inspiring ones that, that kind of make you go, dang, he had a, a tough run at it and he's still right there. Or it's people that, you know, like, like the guy I was just with who, like, you look at him and go, man, how are you not angrier? And then you, you kind of re-evalu- reevaluate your life. Yeah, that's self-awareness. That's good that, that you can see that in other people and apply it to your own life because we do get caught up in the minutia we're we're worried about things that are so trivial most of the time what artist interview challenged you the most i think john mayer because the guy's just wicked smart i'm not even from boston but he is just wicked smart he if you're not on your toes he'll just walk off and leave you just in in a conversation he'll just leave you in the dust so you know, there's about a 45-minute interview I did with John Mayer maybe three or four years ago. He came to the studio. I'm, I'm a big John Mayer fan, but he came to the studio. was going to do 10 minutes, and we started talking about comedy and music. And I was just curious because, again, I play music a bit, not on his level, but I'm just curious about some of the, the technical aspects. And um, he's challenging because you just don't want to look like an idiot interviewing someone that is extremely smart. And I can fall into that idiot category really quick. Man, I love Randy Travis. Uh, I just read his book here during the pandemic and and all the stuff he went through and put himself through, for that matter. What was it like seeing Josh Turner and Randy sing Forever and Ever Amen in person in your studio? Yeah, Randy Travis for me, too, was – I mean, that was childhood for me. You know, the 90s country, my grandma – you know, and and me growing up, it was – my grandma had raised me for a long time, and so it was super classic country for a while. That's what I thought country was. I thought it was Johnny Cash because he was from Arkansas, so we had to be proud of everybody from Arkansas. <laughs> Andy Griffith Gospel Records, um, Ray Charles, you know, a, a lot of that. But she was also a humongous Randy Travis fan. And so when I, when, when I hear just, man, just about any Randy Travis song, it just reminds me of her. So I have this real special place with Randy. Um, but I never met him until he had a stroke. And so I only know Randy in person as, you know, Randy Travis, who I love and admire, but he, I haven't had like a real conversation with him. His communication isn't as good as it used to be, obviously, Mm -hmm. but to see him come in the room and to see him just light up when Josh was singing his song and Josh did a whole record of covers, which is fantastic. And I love Josh Turner and Randy came in and and did the very last part of of it with him. And it was super special, so much so that my co-host, Amy, who's been more before radio, she was one of my dear friends, that, I mean, she cried. And, you know, it's you you get to be a bit jaded whenever you do what we do, honestly. And when everybody comes through, everybody does their thing, and you go, oh, that's cool. But when that happened, it was a real special moment, not just to see Randy in studio, but to to see him come in and, and... be so happy to see Josh sing his song and then to jump in at the end. It was pretty awesome. You going to run for governor of Arkansas one day or not? One day. Well, the, the, the real talk is they want me, if I'm going to declare, they want me to declare by next November because I'll, I'll need a year. I think it's in, in that place. If I do, I think, cause it's weird. I want to tell you, cause I would say I'm, when it comes to where I am politically, I'm pretty green. Meaning, when you're from the South, like I am, every, most folks are red. I'm a bit progressive, but I'm red too. I'm a bit of a green. I'm a red. I'm a, I'm a mix. And I love guns. You got to think I love freaking guns. I have all the guns, 
But then again, I also am for gay marriage. And so I have these sensibilities of where I grew up, but also have other things that have come into my life. And I've said, oh, you know what? I was kind of wrong about that back when, back when I was a kid and I was younger. And I don't know exactly where that place is for me to fit in. Or are we just waiting for somebody that doesn't fit in anywhere to just pop the mold completely? So it's where do I think I can actually get the most done? And I know as someone running for, for office and being in office, you really can't do everything you think you can. But you can have a couple of issues. And for me, it would be food insecurity because I didn't have security. We, we, we had no food. And I would make that a priority. We also, we, I didn't go to the dentist and almost to the doctor until I was 20 years old. Dang. Went to the, the hospital when I, when I busted my spleen and almost died. We were so scared to go to the hospital because we had no money. So the healthcare is, a, is such a big deal to me to make sure that people can afford to go to the dentist and to, the, to get a normal checkup. And most folks can't. Where I come from, you don't go to the doctor, not because you don't need it, but because it's never really been an option because you can't afford it. And so, you know, those, those two things are extremely important to me um, in, in education. And I think that would really be what I would run on if I ran. And if I don't run, I'm still helping out all those things anyway. Like, this is what I do. So, you know, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I think if there's a place for me, I'm being recruited semi-heavily at this point. But, you know, they, they could be recruiting 20 other people at the same time. <laughs> I'll leave you with this. What would you say with everything that's going on in, in, in this time? Like, what's the most challenging aspect of your life right now? Oh, man. I, it's just tough to, to keep my head positive at times because everywhere you look, it's, it's angry. You know, if you're online, it doesn't matter what social media you're on. It's just, it's pretty toxic all the time. And I struggle to not get pulled into some of those toxic places because I, I like everyone else, I have big opinions. Um, so just to escape that toxicity is a struggle with me, not only to, to avoid it with my, my, my headspace, but to not be a part of it. And I do a pretty good job of that. I, not always, but for me, that's, that's the struggle. Um, cause I don't want to be the people I get upset at on, on social media. I don't want to be that. It's easy to be that. And I have been that person before, but you know, I want to be, you know what I want to be? I'll tell you, Marty, I was watching, this is probably what, six months ago, a year ago. I saw that video and I didn't, I didn't even look at it before this. It just came to mind talking to you. I saw the video of you and I don't know what college that, that it was. And this kid, you were walking by as a kid. I believe he was a college kid. was about to do uh, maybe the football stadium, a sports report. And you stopped and you said, Hey man. And you gave him some advice. If the camera was there, it wasn't there. You know, you didn't get right in the frame of the camera. And I was so moved by that then that I think that that, that video alone motivated me to, to reach out to a few people that I know were, were in lower right now on lower levels of the ladder that I'm on. And I reached out to them, and because of that video, I was like, hey, maybe I haven't been as good as, as I can be at being a mentor to you guys. So I want to thank you for that, first of all. And then what was the story? Like, what was your perspective from that? It was quite a moment. And to your point, so it was at the uh, Alabama LSU game last year in Tuscaloosa. And I had finished my last live shot of the evening right at the time when the vast majority of the 
greater Louisiana local reporters and, and greater Alabama local reporters were doing their reports. And this guy, uh, I, 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 I left my crew and I was going to walk to my car and I saw him uh, trying so hard to get through a tape stand-up. And I just don't, I don't know why, I just, I just walked over to him and I said, hey, I want you to know something, brother. What you're doing is really effing hard. And don't let anybody tell you different. You're doing a great job. Don't get flustered. I hate taped stand-ups worse than anything in our career because of perfection. You know this, Bobby. You're live all the time. If you misspeak live, it's okay. That's who we are as human beings. We soldier through it, correct ourselves, and move on. But when it's a taped element, not only is the expectation personally that it's perfect, it's also the expectation from your bosses that it's perfect. Every word. And so Jack was in the middle of his, his stand-up, and he was really struggling to get through it. And I saw that, and I just went over there and, and dapped him up and said, hey, brother, you're, you're killing it. Don't worry about it. And so I had, first of all, I didn't even know his camera was rolling. None of that was even in my, I didn't care, none of that was even in my mind. And then I woke up the next morning, or two, maybe two mornings later. I know I was at home when I got this. And one of my best friends is Shane Beamer, who is Lincoln Riley's associate head coach at Oklahoma, Frank Beamer's son. And Shane and I grew up together. And I got the first text that I saw when I went out and got my phone in the next room the next morning was, I just think it's so amazing that the rest of the world is going to see the guy that we know. And I was like, oh, sh what did I do? What, what happened? <laughs> you know, like, did somebody get me shotgun and a beer? Like, what's going on here? So... Then he, he had sent the Twitter link that Jack put out. And I watched it, and I, I just was like, oh, oh, wow. And, man, that thing went crazy. And I got asked, like, why didn't I promote it or whatever? Because the moment says all that needs saying. Like, nothing else needs to be said. And I found out later when I actually called him because I wanted him to know that, I was really thrilled for him because he's such a sweet soul that so many people were so happy for him that he had that moment and not the moment with me, but the moment where he got all this recognition and he deserved it. Little did I know, Bobby, that was his first assignment ever on camera. Wow. He had been in the newsroom. Like he'd been a shooter cameraman. He'd been a, a producer. He'd done all of this work just to get one shot at being on camera. And that was his shot. The Columbus, Georgia station at which he worked decided to send him to cover that game. And, and that happened. I just, uh, man, I, I appreciate you saying that very much. That's very kind of you. I, I didn't expect that, but it just, uh, it doesn't take much in this life to change, certainly impact a life, but to change a life. The smallest moments of kindness can have such a wide-reaching and long-lasting impact on someone's confidence. And confidence is everything. So few of us 
have true self-confidence because I believe that, that cockiness and insecurity walk hand in hand and self-confidence and selflessness walk hand in hand. And if you, if you just take that moment for somebody, Starbucks barista, how are you today? Thank you for making me my coffee. Let a guy into traffic. The smallest moments can have such a dramatic impact. And that thing just still, I, I don't know. I just, um, I appreciate you saying that. That's very kind of you, very sweet of you. Well, I tell you, in, in the, the land of a thousand giants, which is uh, the media that we're in now, social media, the internet, TV, it, it's tough to be moved anymore. And for me, that resonated so hard. And so, like, the moment wasn't planned to be put out there. I could tell that. If it was, I'd, be, I'd have been able to sniff through it because we see enough. Um, but, yeah, it, again, it motivated me to reach out to a few folks who I felt like that I probably was neglecting. So, so I appreciate that. Well, thank you, brother. And uh, I really appreciate your time. For someone with your crazy schedule, giving us all this time is, is so amazing. And uh, I hope you stay well and stay blessed and keep on making a difference, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. And thanks for talking with me. And hopefully I'll talk to you again soon. I really do appreciate him bringing that up. Uh, that moment with Jack Patterson. Uh, I, I'm still a little, I don't think about it. Uh, it's not something I think about, but um, I'm so grateful that it moved him and, and so many people. It moved millions of people, millions. 2.5 million views it has right now. on his Is it really? Page. Yeah. That was, that was neat for Jack to put it out. And as I told him when I called him, like, this is about you, dude. This ain't about me. This is about your spirit. And, and just taking a moment to embrace one another and build each other up. Like, to Bobby's point right there, we live in a pretty damn toxic time. And the smallest gestures of gratitude and thanks can really impact people. And I know we've gone long, so we need to wrap it up. But I, I thanked Jack also for – I get asked a lot what Marty is, what you are like. And I was able to now say, here is what Marty's like. If you, if people wonder, you know, who is the Marty Smith that I know, that's the Marty Smith. So when I was talking with Jack when back, when we did that, one of the things I told him, I go, thank you. Cause now you, he didn't have to, but you know, he, he gave people a glimpse into the person that I know. Well, that's awful sweet of you, brother. I love you. I appreciate you saying that. And, since we've kept y'all for two hours or something, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much to Ray Fulcher and Bobby Bones and, and everybody involved in, in getting those guys to us and, and, and their amazing stories and them taking the time to share them. Uh, Travis, thank you for your time. Uh, you worked really hard on this episode. I did a lot of work. I didn't book either, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to have to pour a drink and edit this. I was going to say, the work's coming. You better yeah. pour a double because editing this thing is going to be serious. But thanks so much to our law enforcement officials all over the country working hard to keep these communities safe, our firemen, our first responders, and the United States military, all branches. We're so grateful for you guys and your sacrifice to keep us free. Uh, everybody have an amazing week. Y'all check me out on the ABC broadcast of the Virginia Tech-North Carolina game. we got Marty McGee Wednesday night. we got Marty McGee Saturday morning on ESPN Radio. Y'all be good. We appreciate you.